Hello, my friend. Welcome to this week's episode. You are listening to the Voice of the Entrepreneur podcast. This is Ahmed, your host and founder of VOE. Some of you may already know that my background is in environmental engineering and that for a long time I was working in the environmental field where I did many things from water treatment, waste management, to even recycling programs. One of the things that I was doing with the municipalities that I was involved in was taking the waste streams that were coming from the residential areas and then dividing them into multiple different recycling streams hoping to achieve high levels of recycling and organic composting in the municipality that we were working with. So for sure, recycling is something that is close to my heart. And just the other day, I got connected to a friend that I haven't spoken to in a long time. And I was really delighted to find out that he was working for a company that was doing something about the global plastic waste that's everywhere especially in our oceans the company is called plastic bank and my friend whose name is lindsay christianson is the director of business development in that company now plastic bank is a company that literally turns plastic into cash it's a really interesting and an amazing concept that has taken the trash or plastic trash to be specific around the world and has created opportunities for resourceful entrepreneurs locals that are living in that region to collect plastic and to turn that into cash. So I took the opportunity to invite him on the podcast and talk about the role of Plastic Bank in the global fight against plastic waste. We talk about so many things, including things like how is plastic ending up in our oceans? What happens to plastic once it gets into the ocean? What are the causes behind all this plastic ending up in our water streams and unfortunately affecting the biodiversity that's in our oceans? This is a major problem, but we don't see it happening in front of us because this is happening thousands of miles somewhere in the middle of the ocean where we really have no connection to it. So we're going to get into all these different things, but specifically we're going to talk about how much plastic waste is generated and ends up in our oceans. How does Plastic Bank turn plastic into cash? There's some really great incentives that Plastic Bank uses to drive people to do recycling in their regions. Also, how does plastic circulate in the ocean and why is it a problem in the world? Like, why does a bottle that you chuck in the garbage, if it ends up into the ocean, why is that such a problem? We talk about the mindset that is needed to tackle a problem this big. So many of us have very big missions, but a lot of the times we can get discouraged thinking we are too small to act on this ourselves. We are too small as one man or a woman to do this, but we talk Talk about the mindset of what the founders of the company had that they decided to go ahead and tackle this problem that is so big, so massive, that sometimes we can feel too small to do anything about it. Also, how to move the masses to follow your vision and mission. Something like the plastic bank can only work if millions if not billions of people get behind it. How do you make that happen? How do you move the masses? Also, what are the opportunities in social enterprises that's focused on the environmental issues that's out there, including with plastic waste or other recycling streams or just the environment in general? There are some really great lessons to take away from this conversation. Hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, here's Lindsay Christensen. Lindsay, my man, how you doing? 
I'm doing great, man. Thanks, Ahmed. Yeah. Uh, love to see the smiling face. I haven't seen it in a little while. Uh, it always warms my heart and uh, happy to be chatting with you. Awesome, man. Let's talk a little bit about plastic waste. Like before we even get into the company and what work you guys do, tell us how much plastic waste is actually out there. And I know you guys work with the oceans and cleaning up of the oceans. So tell us, give us a sense of the problem. Sure. I mean, I don't know if I have all the specific numbers that you're looking for, but in terms of the amount of plastic that's been created, there's something called virgin plastic, which is new plastic. A lot of people don't even know that new plastic comes from oil and petroleum. So it is coming from a fossil fuel. And since it's ever been created in the 50s, you have 8 billion tons of plastic that has been created since that time. And most of that plastic is still all here. Uh, some of that plastic has been uh, recycled. Some of that has been you know, used to try and turn it into fuel. Others has just been burned and everything else is pretty much left in landfills as well as um, flowing into the ocean. And the numbers for the amount of plastic that flow into the ocean are 8 million tons of plastic that end up in the ocean every year. And that essentially comes down to about the equivalent of one dump truck worth per minute that will flow into the ocean. So we've been chatting for a couple minutes, uh, eight dump trucks, the equivalent of have streamed into the ocean. So one dump truck every minute, nonstop, 24 hours a day, just dumping plastics into the ocean. That's wow. right. The, the type of problem that this is, I mean, it's insurmountable, but that's really where Plastic Bank comes in and helps us alleviate some of the issues that, that this is generating. Now, the question is, the interesting question is, how do you turn plastic into cash? Because that's what Plastic Bank has been successfully been able to do. Right. Well, that's the beginning of the sentence. And um, a lot of people think that, oh, I get it. You know, you're going to take the plastic bottles and you're going to melt them down and turn them into physical dollar bills. No, we don't do that. Oh, you're going to take the plastic and you're going to turn it into ATM cards so people can, can use that. And Well, no, not exactly. So back to the equation of how do we do this? There's that 8 million tons that goes into the ocean every year. The, the number that's worth mentioning is that about 80% of that plastic comes from places in the world that don't have any recycling infrastructure set up for the formalized collection of the plastic. That works out to about 60 to 70% of that being from the poorest countries in the world. We're looking at places in uh, Southeast Asia, we're looking at places in Central America, Latin America, um, all over. But basically there's no infrastructure set up. That doesn't mean that developed nations are off the hook. We live in the Vancouver area where things are very established and we take it for granted that everybody else has our type of facilities. But even if you go to other parts of Canada, you know, that doesn't exist. There's, there's very limited and a lot of it just ends up in the trash. And in my discovery as well during this journey, I was very surprised to find out that of 52 states in the U.S., there's really only about 15 that have any type of formalized recycling infrastructure to collect plastic waste. So yeah, isn't that incredible? I mean, I've lived in the United States and uh, very few states actually have that system in place. It's uh, incredible how people just chuck their plastic waste into the trash. Exactly. 
And the thing is, is that that bottle, that, that plastic itself, it has an inherent value. It, it's the equivalent of looking at, you know, a bar of gold or diamonds and so forth, but it just gets discarded. People don't see and recognize that value. So we go into places in the world that have a high amount of poverty as well as a high amount of plastic waste. And we create a very efficient collection infrastructure by working with the world's poor and people that are typically earning under a dollar a day where they are incentivized to go collect plastic from the environment, from the ocean bound waterways, from rivers and streams that it ends up in. And we give them premium rewards to go collect the plastic. They can go collect amounts of plastic, return it back to physical collection points that we have. We have operations currently in Haiti in Central America, as well as deployments happening in the Philippines and Brazil. Hmm. We're expanding into India, Ethiopia, Indonesia, parts of Africa. And essentially when people bring the plastic back, they can get cash in return, similar to what we do here. But then we also have uh, the opportunity for them to essentially save the value of that plastic. And again, for somebody that's living below the poverty line, they've never had a personal identification card. They've never had a bank account. But with great partners that we work with, like IBM, for example, they've worked with us to architect essentially a blockchain banking platform so that the individuals that bring plastic back to the banks can save the value in a digital token. And the items that they can get at the store then in the banks essentially are things like tuition for their children. They can get medical care, medical insurance. They can get high efficiency cooking stoves. We have solar power on the units so they can use the, the power coming through the plastic banks to charge a cell phone. Mm. They can actually uh, get a cell phone if they don't have one. A common question that people ask is, well, wait a minute, we're talking about people below the poverty line. Do they have a cell phone? Surprisingly, Yes. Right. People in uh, developing nations often have more um, access to a cell phone than they do to clean water. The transaction that happens there gives people this ability to earn their way from making less than a dollar a day, then making upwards of five and six dollars a day. And for them, in a, in a situation like this, this all of a sudden becomes a middle class situation where you're not living day to day trying to figure out where your next meal is coming from and you're able to spend some discretionary income on the things like tuition, additional food, and so forth. That plastic then that comes back to our system, we make that plastic available as a plastic feedstock where great brands come and work with us to buy that feedstock and then make new recycled products. That's kind of the, the short version. I can get into some of the other areas that we work in with plastic offsetting and sponsorship and so forth. But we'll come back to the you know the the way that plastic bank ties in economic incentives for people to do the cleanup, sure. collect the plastic. I think that is one of the most critical aspects of why a project works. As you were talking about this, I was thinking about something as well, and that is that I've traveled to different parts of the world. And a lot of the times when I am at a beach, I often see plastic trash just lying on the beach, just there from 
you know, all kinds of trash from plastic bottles to toys to all kinds of different things. I remember this one time I was in Mexico and I picked up this little piece of plastic that I had no idea what it was, but I, I picked it up and it had it, the, the, the text on it was in Korean. And I couldn't understand why there would be a plastic trash here on, mm. on the Mexican soil that was from the other side of the world. So, Lindsay, tell us, how does plastic end up in the ocean, first of all? And how does it circulate around the world? And why is it such a big problem? Well, there's a lot of questions in there. Um, how does it end up in the ocean? Um, really comes down to, again, like I mentioned, there not being a, a formalized collection infrastructure in terms of curbside um, in a lot of the countries. Heck, they don't even have really reliable garbage pickup, right? So you've got a lot of different disease that is happening around that, let alone the ability to recycle. You know, for example, if you go to somewhere like Haiti, um, you'll see small villages in the hills where you see them, they've, they've consumed plastic, they come out of their house and they take the plastic and it's kind of like we would put it in our, our blue bin that we have here that holds plastic, but there's no blue bin. They just mm. put the plastic on the side of the road right. and nobody comes to collect it except for the weather and the rain comes and it washes it down into the ditches it washes it into the rivers, it washes into the waterways. And when you're talking about a lot of these kind of tropical areas, we're talking, you know, uh, torrential rainpour. So it's going to come flood down really quick and then it just washes it away. In Haiti, for example, there's something called the plastic canal where people consume their plastic and they just chuck it in the thing. And then the, the plastic keeps kind of overflowing, overflowing, and then gets pushed into the ocean. I had an opportunity to visit one of the the beaches there and and beach is a bit of a misnomer it was more of a, a village where people lived and it happened to be um, on a coastline and we're talking about a kilometer long where it was just you know plastic upon plastic mixed with the you know the 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 dirt and the the so forth you know that's not necessarily where we get our plastic from when when we're working with people to collect it but it was really heartbreaking because these are people living on top of this and when i see my son who at that time was 1 year old um could barely walk I was looking in that environment and you've got people that are living on top of it with their shanties and corrugated tin roofs. I'm hearing a child cry who's about the same age as my son, barefoot and naked walking around, you know, right next to pigs and, and chickens that are trying to eat plastic. And then a guy down the way burning it to try and get, uh, you know, copper wire. That's one path, I suppose, that it, it comes from. Then, um, you know, that's the heavier things like the bottles, how it gets picked up as well as plastic bags. And then in places that have uh, a water table that's not safe to drink, a lot of places get their drinking water, not so much from a water bottle, but from a little like three inch by three inch or six centimeter by six centimeter square bag of water. And they basically chew off a corner, they suck the water out and they toss it. And these little water bags are everywhere. Right. So if we're looking at about 13, 14 million people in Haiti, 5 million people rely on these water bags a day. They drink five of those a day. That's 15 million little water bags in the environment every day that can get picked up by the wind or the water 
and right into the ocean. Back to your other question, how does plastic from Korea get to the shores of Mexico? You know, I'll make reference to a great, a great website that um, listeners can check out, and it's called Adrift. And it's a science project where they did a lot of these um, tests with little rubber duckies. Mm. And it was head up by, you know, College of London out of the UK and other plastics uh, organizations to track the flows of plastic around the world. And you can click on any shoreline on that. And it's essentially an interactive map where it shows where plastic will start and then where it ends up over 10 years. And for example, when we click on Haiti in that area of the uh, Dominican Republic, you click on a shoreline there and it takes really only about three to four years for the currents and the flows to, to dump it on the shores of Europe. Click through the channels in Rotterdam and the shores of Europe takes about five years to get it back down to South America or back down to Central America. Right. If you look at the Philippines, you see it uh, actually spreading through that ecosystem and through those island systems in a matter of about eight months to a year. And that ends up all the way on the shores of Africa. So for something to end up from the Pacific islands over to Mexico, is not a huge stretch because of the amount of flows that it goes around in the ocean itself. And there's something called the five gyres, mm. which are essentially these massive currents um, that are, you know, picking up the plastic. And that's how they transfer from, you know, one coastline to the other. And it's funny because when you think about a country like Haiti and all the, all the plastic trash that's coming from there, it's really a fraction of the entire world's trash that's coming out there. Like just imagine the country like India or China or any other place that is probably dumping so much more than that. So definitely, I mean, a good place to start would be a country like Haiti, but there's so much work to be, to be still done. We all know that plastic is bad for the environment. And the thing is, these plastics are not causing a havoc on the shorelines of, of different countries. It's actually ca causing more havoc in the water, somewhere in the ocean, wherever that is. Why is it important that we clean plastic? What, what is it causing in the world? We all know that plastic is bad, but specifically, if we don't take care of this problem today, why is it so important? Or how is it that it's going to affect our future generations tomorrow? Sure. Well, you know, let me, I guess, preface that to say, you know, I think a lot of people have a love-hate relationship with plastic because we, we love the convenience of it. We love that it can keep our things fresh. We love that we can carry things with it. We love that it can do things and save lives and increase, you know, health standards and things like that. And it's not the plastic itself that causes the problem. It's the people. It's the irresponsibility of us of just not taking care of it and setting it up for that end of life. Why is it important really to keep it out of the oceans? Well, the animals eat it. When we look at the food chain, um, there's many things called microplastics. This can come in from many different directions than I mentioned, especially things like polyester clothing. Every time you do a load of laundry, little, uh, little microplastics go right down into the sewer and end up into the ocean as well. You know, there's a choice for consumers to make different purchasing patterns. Things like, what's that face scrub stuff with the little microbeads in it, right? That, that sort of thing, that ends up right down the tube as well for the sake of beauty. So, 
heck, we like beauty. We, we love beautiful women and so forth, but at what cost? Mm -hmm. And at that cost, that form of a little microbead going down, getting into the ocean, ends up in the form of an animal's stomach. So when a lot of people think of plastic getting into animals, they're thinking things like shape and size of a, a button, which very much does end up in an animal's stomach. But if that one little fish consumes some plastic, and then the next fish and the next size animal up the food chain continues to eat it, so like thinking, well, they didn't eat the plastic, so how does it end up in me? And really the thing is, is that it's the microtoxins from the plastic. So the toxin from the plastic itself that is emitted is what ends up in the bloodstream and within your body that's gonna create a carcinogenic effect. So A, I don't want it in our, in our oceans because I don't personally wanna be eating toxins and be getting sick and I don't want anybody else to get sick, but you were mentioning where could this go? How bad could it get? I think is what you were alluding to. And if we were looking at the ultimate of being really, really bad, you know, what happens if all the animals die uh, or a large percent of them die in the ocean? You're going to have a major decomposition of animals, which is going to let off a lot of off-gassing and probably create a lot of CO2 and a lot of things that are harmful gases, which is not going to be good for anybody. Yeah, and in addition to that, I mean, if we lose, you know, this is an ecosystem. It's a, the entire world, the planet is an ecology that is dependent yes. on every other species. We can't just sustain ourselves by ourselves. It just won't happen. And there's a tendency for us, for people, to think that we are immune to our own actions. And that's just not the truth. And we're seeing more and more of that. We dump a plastic bottle here into the oceans and we think that it's fine. It's never going to come back to me, but it's all a circle. And it somehow ends up right back to, right back to us. And mm -hmm. I think that is the kind of realization that's needed in order for people to care about why do we need to do this? Because ultimately it's going to affect us. That is number one for care. But I want to bring this back to the, uh, the point of how plastic is turned into cash. One of the key indicators, Lindsay, to success of an environmental project is how well it's able to tie in to economic incentives. Now, if you can make a project that can be profitable for the people that are participating in it, then I would, then I would imagine uh, that the participation rate and the success rate would be higher because there is an economic incentive. My question is, from your perspective, why do you think that an economic incentive is such an important aspect to having success for a project like this? Well, who, who's economic success? The collector, the business, the brand, us as a, as a social enterprise, who do you mean? Everyone, everyone, everyone has to somehow profit in some way to make it sustainable for them to want to continue this. Otherwise, it just becomes a nonprofit, becomes yeah. a social enterprise. And if only one part of the equation is benefiting, it's not sustainable either. So I would say for everyone involved. Uh, it really comes down to the notion of teach a man to fish, right? Are we going to give out money continuously as a, a nonprofit, trying to fix it with, with money and subsidies? No, because that money runs out. But if we treat it like a business and we create a sustainable solution where, you know, it does have economic value and we're able to transfer that economic value to people that are collecting the plastic, 
then we can treat it where there's more benefit, where essentially people that are going to be contributing and purchasing the plastic also get the benefit to say we're providing economic value to this ecosystem. Mm-hmm. They get to celebrate and building their, you know, economic impact as well. But it's not about the economic impact for them. It's about them creating a social and environmental impact. And again, for them, it's not about just them. In fact, it's not about me or even our company. It's about the consumer who's going to be making that purchase because it's the purchasing power and either the responsibility or the irresponsibility that is that product that will essentially say, I'm going to buy this product over that product because I know that this one is going to be able to provide a leg up for people that need it the most and it's going to be sustainable over time and people aren't just going to continually be looking for handouts. So that's the way that we view it is that it must be treated as a business. And when we treat it like a business, then we're empowering people that are living below poverty lines because then they bring their entrepreneurial resources and never forget that somebody that's living below the poverty line, these are some of the most resourceful people in the world. And if you give them an opportunity, they will do like circles around probably lots of people that have had formal education because they will be thinking so differently and they will not be thinking about themselves. They will be thinking about themselves and their community at all times. All entrepreneurs are incredibly resourceful people because they have to be. It's just the nature of the game that they're in. So, and of course, you know, for people that are, that are poor or that don't have the opportunity to perhaps be doing something else, when there is a problem and it's tied into the economic incentive of them participating in it and benefiting from it, it takes on a momentum on its own and then it's self-sustainable. You don't have to, like you said, keep putting the money, the resources in it to keep fueling it. It's a self-sustaining system, which is really beautiful. Here's another thought. We all want to solve problems in this world, but one of the things is we sometimes feel pretty small to do anything about certain things. And this is a major problem that the plastic bank is tackling. Now, I want to come from a mindset perspective, and maybe you can speak for the founders as well and for yourself. Why the plastic bank decide that this was the problem that they want to tackle? And why did they think that they, were, that they had the capacity to, to tackle a problem this big and make a difference in the world when so many of us just give up and say, this is too big, I can't do it, I'm a one-man show or I'm too little for, for this problem. What, takes, what, what does it take for a man or a woman to really go after a problem this big and really start making a dent in it? Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, the project itself really came out of the belief that it could be done because of uh, an organization and an amazing mindset from our founder. You know, he was able to build a business previously uh, within, you know, uh, tracking and logistics and able to essentially uh, have a great exit from that and then have some time to really think about being uh, of service in the world as well. So that can come from sitting on the mountain and, and doing that alone, but also finding out what the big problems are. And in one area that that comes from, organizations like, you know, Singularity University, head up by Ray Kurzweil and Peter Diamandis, where they're identifying these huge global grand challenges, everything from climate change 
to oceans, to poverty. And as time has gone on, you start to see this very well aligned with the United Nations and their sustainable development goals, where they have identified, you know, 17 major issues in the world that need, you know, they need addressing. Otherwise, as humanity stands, we're, we're fucked. Like, <laughs> when it comes down to it, you know, I think there was a presentation where essentially he was looking at a fellow who had been able to take plastic. And this is about five years ago. And he was giving a talk and it was recycled and turned into the form of like a belt. And the belt buckle was made of a recycled plastic. And the crowd kind of went bonkers for it. Like, oh my God, this is the most amazing thing, mm-hmm. right? Kind of light bulb went on for him that it was that it wasn't the, the value that was just in this uh, plastic itself. It was the perception of the plastic that was altered just because of the shape. And that he could take the value that was in this plastic and find a way to turn that into value. And then the concept came together where it was like, okay, wait a minute. And then there's all this plastic that's going into the ocean and there's all this plastic in the environment. And then, oh my God, if we could take that and then there's poverty and we could take that value and put it into people's hands and right. And then I, I can't speak for him, but is really what I think entrepreneurs uh, in a social enterprise uh, feel, which is they feel taken over. They feel so called to something that it is almost an out-of-body uh, experience or such an in-body experience that you're vibrating at such a level that there's now no way that you cannot do it mm-hmm. because you've seen it, you've seen the problem, you've seen a solution, you know it's going to be freaking hella hard, but you're going to do it anyways. You know, as, as small as we feel, there are organizations out there to help, whether that is working with entrepreneurs that have done it you know, before you or organizations that can provide you a little bit of a leg up for some funding, really realizing that you do have the power, you do have the ability to make the change. You know, An alarming statistic came up when we were at the Singularity Summit last year, which is the average male and female over the course of their lifetime will spend about 40,000 hours watching sports or entertainment. Wow. Hmm. What would happen if you took those hours and started contributing those hours to solving some of this real shit problems that are out there? They had this one contest where one of these groups, uh, a big corporate was trying to solve a major global problem And the winner came from uh, somewhere in an emerging market that didn't have much for developing uh, opportunities, had taken the time to put this entry in, and he's the guy that won, right? So if that one person can take the time to put a concept paper of, you know, five to 10 pages and get some funding to kickstart a business that's going to make impact in the world, I don't think there's any reason why other people can't do it. It's just that mindset that you're asking about it. Am I going to make choice to do the comfortable thing, put my feet up, crack a beer and watch the football game? There are solutions. And I guess that's what I'm trying to get is that in each of us, there are solutions that we can uniquely find and present to the world. You really believe in what you're doing and that's what's showing up. You're, you're, you're fired up about you know, the mindset piece and how people can really not see themselves as little Uh, everybody has the power to move and take action and to do something different. I always say to the entrepreneurs that I work with is that if your mission is big enough, 
if your mission is big enough, then the pain that comes with following that mission is not going to weigh heavy enough to stop you. And that's the reason why you should find missions that are going to keep driving you and are going to be big enough for you to not stop when the going gets tough because the going always gets tough. And like you said, I, I loved what you said about uh, one man, uh, one woman can make a change, can make a difference. It doesn't have to be people with you know hundreds of millions of dollars. It, it really it takes an idea. It takes that mindset. And more importantly, the courage. People with big missions almost feel like they have no choice but to act on it. And they go for it. And that's just how things happen, right? Yeah. And then, uh, you know, you keep doing the work. You keep finding your platform. You keep doing stuff like you're doing. You build the awareness. You know, uh, for our founder, we just had an amazing TED Talk last week published from the main stage. People can listen to that and hear a little 10-minute version of that. But, you know, that's on the main stage. What about these two girls, you know, out of Indonesia? I think they're like 12 and 14 year old girls where they've started uh, building this petition to ban plastic bags in Indonesia. It's incredible, you know, like find your voice and, and learn how to speak it. And you're, you mentioned something as well where you will feel so called to do it, but it's that calling and belief that you can that's going to get you through those hard days because this has been most fantastic journeys of my life, but one of the hardest as well. I feel now... That doesn't matter. It's still able to get me out of bed at five and six in the morning because it's not about me. It's now, okay, I have a way to serve and, and that's how I can live my true power. This is exactly the reason why I love doing these podcasts is because I want to get this energy out in the world. I want these voices to be heard because when you say things like that, Lindsay, that I can wake up five or six, six o'clock in the morning because it's just driving me, that is fire for somebody else. That is yeah. inspiration for somebody else to go ahead and do what they want to do in their lives too to create the change that they want. And even little things make a massive impact when we put it all together, when we pull it all together. So it doesn't matter how big or small your project is or your purpose is, it's, it's, it's still a purpose worthwhile. So yeah, do the best uh, you that you can do to the best of your abilities and keep growing outside your comfort zone, right? Absolutely, absolutely. All right, shifting gears a little bit, yeah. I wanna ask you, uh, what does it take to mobilize the masses? into a movement that this has become because it takes a lot of people. It takes the masses to really make a, a dent in a problem this big. And the company has been able to do that. Obviously it's tied economic incentive in that and that's what it's moving. But for, for entrepreneurs that are also trying to create social enterprises and that are trying to create movement, what can we learn from the plastic bank and how you've been able to, to mobilize the masses? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, always keep learning. You know, we have a culture in our business where we listen to a new audiobook every week to get new, you know, inspiration, uh, whether that's spirituality, whether that's leadership or entrepreneurship, uh, stuff to get us thinking differently and to think um, on, our, on our heads and be able to bring creativity uh, when we didn't know we had it. Um, in terms of mobilizing, for us, it's been about thinking into the possibility and, and living beyond what the past has brought to us. You know, on an annual basis, we, we often do our, our BHAGs or big, hairy, audacious goals. And, and last year we did one uh, which was to gather a billion people together to help stop ocean plastic. And so how do you do that? 
Well, you, you speak it into possibility first. Our word is so powerful that if you're going to speak it, why not make it something that is meaningful and so big that it can be uh, able to move the masses, right? Mm -hmm. And for us, you know, speaking that into existence is one thing, but it has to have that feeling behind it. If there's no feeling like, hey, I'm going to get a billion people together, it's going to be awesome. Nah, it's like, we're going to get a billion people together to stop ocean plastic. Now I got some energy, it's got some vibration, and that's going into the world. Then, of course, it's going to take action. It's going to take picking up the phone. It's going to take talking to people. It's going to take messaging people on all the mediums that are available to us. And through the, through the relationships that you build and through talking into that possibility, things come into fruition. Case in point, that happened of saying, how do we connect with a billion people in one failed swoop? Uh, through that, we've been able to get connected to the Vatican, where we're now working with a couple of the cardinals, uh, one who head up the environment and one who head up uh, poverty, where a sermon is being created to connect with a billion Catholics for them to be able to not only bring their offering on Sundays, but to also bring their recycling with them. And then that recycling can be transferred through the system of our plastic banks so that those premiums can then be transferred to the poor. That's how I've seen it come into existence is, is thinking into the possibility and then finding people that you can either mastermind it or start speaking it into possibility and treating it as though it was real. I, I really believe that there's so much power in our word and most of us are, are living in that same kind of mental uh, dialogue that we had yesterday. You know, you know how it is. People say it's 80% of the thoughts are the same ones you had yesterday. So why not change that dialogue? And really a lot of the time that just comes down to sitting by yourself and thinking what dialogue's running through my head and what dialogue would I like to be running through my head and consciously making a decision to say, okay, I'm going to make a change. I'm gonna make a difference. First of all, you know, I think that it really does require that self-reflection to do that mm -hmm. so that you can deal with some of your own, let's say, personal issues or garbage or things that are weighing you down. Of right. course, you can still make it if you have those issues. It's just going to be a lot easier to fly if you're lighter. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like that. It's going to be a lot easier to fly if you're lighter. I, I, I appreciate you saying that because it's really about mindset, of course, and it's beautiful enough that I want to reiterate it. First of all, you got to be solid enough in what you believe in. You got to be convicted about your mission and your purpose and know yes. that you have something in this world that people need to listen to. Like it's worth enough to have that voice. And then the, the other thing is one of the best ways to spread your message is to leverage people that have a reach, that have an audience that's already listening to them, that trust that voice. One of the examples that comes into mind is, um, Sadhguru, who's been able to mobilize millions of people in India to do cleanups for rivers. Right. And the way that he's been able to do that is because he's become that voice that people can trust. And it is a completely unbiased voice that has no agenda and is not you know, tied into a certain um, benefit for anybody. There's no advantage to him personally, or there's no gains. And that's why people really listen to what he has to say, because people can trust that. And right. that's probably one of the best ways like you've been able to do to go with the Vatican, make them the voice that now is now bigger, more people can listen to it, more people can hear it. So 
absolutely one of the most powerful ways is to is to get with other people and to see if they're going to share your message as well. Yeah. And, and I think you mentioned it there, right? I mean, it's like, how do you get those influencers that have networks or clusters that can then create that kind of an effect? And I think an inspiring story that I had heard was, um, how many years ago was it? I think it was within the last 10 years when there was that big volcano in uh, Iceland. Uh, anyway, so all the planes were ground down. There was a guy there who made the most of the situation and knew how to work with uh, influencers um, and he knew how to work with clusters and networks. Mm. And I'm not sure how long it takes to usually organize a form of a, a TEDx or a TED event, but it's usually probably around six months or so. So these planes were ground down within Iceland and he essentially started using the network in the time that he had available while ground down to start organizing a TED event in Iceland. And over the period of about three or five days, whatever it was, he was able to pull together a TEDx event, Iceland, or I think it was actually called TED Volcano, maybe. Uh, it was organized in a, an extremely short amount of time, but it yeah. came together by simply finding the influencers, getting them to contact their networks, and then they were able to pull it all together. So there, there's a lot in that. People mobilize people. That's what it is. It, it may not even be the cause specifically. It's people. It's people. Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of cases, people are standing by because a lot of people are dormant and they want to be activated. They want to be a part of something. You know, a lot of people are afraid to raise their voice because they're afraid to look stupid. Mm -hmm. But in so many cases, they got a really important message to share. And it would be great if they found boldness to share it. That's really why this platform exists as well, because yeah. I want to encourage entrepreneurs to come out and share their voice and come out and talk to us about what they're doing and how they're doing it, because every voice matters. Lindsay, tell us about what opportunities exist for entrepreneurs that are looking to start businesses or enterprises in clean or social plastic. There is a lot out there. And sometimes people think that there is no opportunity there because everything's been taken care of. We're doing the recycling, we're doing the ocean cleanup. It's all been taken care of. How can I get into this? Give us some, uh, some ideas, man, on what are the opportunities for social entrepreneurs out there? <laughs> That's a good question. That's a hard one. I mentioned a couple places. You know, if you look at the United Nations and the Sustainable Development Goals, a lot of social enterprises are really aligned around this idea of solving these types of problems. So you can look there. Uh, you could also look at things uh, like Singularity University uh, to start getting ideas uh, of things that are maybe big problems. And that's usually what social entrepreneurship is around, is how to make the impact, how to create an impact that will empower people and help to make um, uh, a positive impact for the world, not just uh, the people at the top of the pyramid and it's not so much a derogatory term but you know for everybody people at the bottom of the pyramid people that need a good leg up and just need an opportunity so when I mention these kind of ideas um, people can look within and, and realize what kind of skill sets they have you know many people as entrepreneurs we we're great at you know uh, talking about stuff but we suck at other areas you know we might not be so good on the finance side or we might not be so good on uh, whichever the more left brain detail things but we can we can start a fire we can get that going and and my recommendation is you know if anybody's ever listened to like James Altucher uh, the idea of having idea sex and take 
two or three ideas. You know, what are the skills that I have? What are some of these grand challenges? And start smushing them together and, you know, see which ones work. And, you know, maybe they don't work right away. But then all of a sudden, by putting it pen to paper or start chatting it through with your friends, boom, spark happens. And now a new idea is formed. And you're able to take that and construct that as a social enterprise and, you know, uh, take a shot at it. You know, you might be able to find some initial funding from a, uh, an investor that you know or, or find something from a, a grant or a government program. And you're going to teach yourself to fish, right? And, and that's really what it is, is, is create that spark for yourself. Beautiful. Is there any specific opportunities with the plastic bank to, for people, not just entrepreneurs, but any people to come on board, help with this effort? What can we do as everyday consumers? You know, uh, at the plastic bank itself, there's, there's lots of things people can do in terms of, you know, joining our, our following and our movement. People can go on Facebook and join the movement. They can obviously like that with every like, that's essentially a way that we can help validate that people want to see plastic from getting out of the ocean. You can also uh, hashtag uh, post to companies that you want to see use our product called Social Plastic in their products, uh, which can be a big help. You can actually go to our website as well and purchase uh, a t-shirt, which that t-shirt, any profits from that go to help pay premiums for collectors on the ground. And in terms of things outside of the plastic bank, you know, my ask is to be a, a more conscious consumer, right? You know, do you need that straw? Do you need that bag? Do you need uh, the, the big jumbo pack that comes with everything individually wrapped with inside of it? And if you stop purchasing it, it's going to stop being made. And you do have the power because each purchase is a vote. Our co-founder, co-founders, David Katz, who you can see the TED Talk on, and our co-founder, Sean Frankson, also has a great TEDx Talk where every purchase is a vote. And if you don't think you can do something, you can because each one of those actions is an action. And it is a vote. And if you stop voting for the consumer products that you don't like, they're not going to be around much longer. You know, it's funny you say that because my belief is that a consumer vote is actually sometimes even more powerful than a democratic vote. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. the reason for that is because money speaks. And when we make that choice, companies have no choice but to listen to the consumer or otherwise they, they're not in business anymore. So I'm very happy that you iterated that point that we all as consumers have a choice into making the right choices for us and for our, for our planet. We all have to see this as a collective. Absolutely, Lindsay. I think the conversation with you for me was uh, definitely very empowering, but at the same time, eye-opening as to some of the problems that exist in the world when it comes to plastic. So, so thank you so much for educating us and then also to spread your energy in the way that you did. It is definitely contagious and anybody listening, I am sure, is going to feel compelled to act in whatever little, small, or big way that they can. So I really appreciate that. And thank you so much for being part of this conversation, Lindsay. Uh, thank you, Ahmed. You're a bright light and you're doing important work. So I'm happy to see you living from your heart, man. That's awesome.
If you enjoyed this podcast, my friend, then you should definitely check out a three-day video series that I've put together on the website that shows you how you can turn your passion into a business. It is a proven method that I have used in my business and several entrepreneurs that I have worked with to take them from where they are today, possibly in a job that they don't enjoy, to being in a place that they really do love and have a business and a lifestyle that they want. So my friend, visit our website at voebheard.com and check out the video series. Hope to see you there.